start. Be Real is presented by California College of the Arts MFA in Writing Program. Getting an MFA at their art school setting in San Francisco means you can paint and write, design and write, and make a film and write. You can also just write. Look for their faculty member Leslie Carroll Roberts' critically acclaimed Here is Where I Walk, Episodes from a Life in the Forest, out now from University of Nevada Press, and Adam Nemetz, We Can Save Us All, from Unnamed Press. For more information, power on your computer and visit cca.edu slash writing MFA. Welcome one and all to a TV recapping podcast on the Playlist Podcast Network. It is Sunday night, and it's time for three podcasters to climb inside of a quantum computing building that looks like Liberace Sauna. This is a recap show about the last half of Devs on FX and Hulu. My name's Chance Solemn Pfeiffer. And I'm Noah Ballard. And we're super excited to have with us, he's back from the John Singleton Be Real remembrance that we did earlier in the year. He is the author of Riot Baby, War Girls, and Beasts Made of Night. Tochi Onyabuchi, welcome back, sir. Thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure to be back. Uh, we are, we're really happy to break down, break down this show with you, because I feel like this is one where I, I really need like different people's emotional, mm-hmm. philosophical <laughs> outlooks on this thing. Like Depending what you believe, this yeah. show could strike you any number of different ways. Um, so, Noah and I have recapped like one through four, but uh, Tochi, what were your feelings on devs down the stretch? Maybe like to the halfway point. How are you feeling about it? So I, I loved it for a number of reasons that, you know, I'll go into more detail um, in later on. And I think one of the big reasons I loved it was because of the way that it dealt aesthetically and philosophically with the melding of sort of science and religiosity mm. um, in a way that that the anime Neon Genesis Evangelion really did, right? And so you look at that anime, it's it's like chaotically eschatological, right? Like, the, the you know, there are these giant biomechanical robots that these 15-year-olds have to pilot to fight what are called angels, which are these like weird like agents of the apocalypse that are in these bizarre geometric shapes and whatnot. And that, you know, nobody knows where they come from. They're just here to like erase humanity. And it like, there's all types of incredible imagery and whatnot. And then in devs, you see that on so many different levels, you see it on the audio level with the score and the, you know, the Gregorian chanting, you see it um, with the, with this, this fixation that they have with using the system to, to rewatch the crucifixion. Yeah, that doesn't seem like an accident that that's one of the yeah, things. Yeah. Ex- exactly. So like it, you know, this constant recurrence of religious motifs in this very interesting science heavy milieu, especially given the the emphasis on you know, explication of of determinism and deterministic sort of, you know, mindsets and whatnot. I so I loved it. I thought it was very cohesive as a project and i think similar to how i felt about chernobyl one of those interesting products of having 
you know, the same person do the writing and directing of a limited series formatted story. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely it's definitely all him. Noah, how uh how are you at this point? I'm just gonna I'm gonna open up to a wider question. Noah, how you holding up? I'm holding up all right. All right. How are you doing? No, I'm fine. I'm how where are you at via devs right now? Via devs. No, I mean I'm totally on board with all of that and you know, good on you, Tochi, for for being my go to guy when it comes to uh, allegorical sci fi uh, in this <laughs> I space. Got you. And throwing out the anime references. Uh yeah. Yeah, I mean, I was curious because this one ends, the first four episode ends with uh, Kenton just like pushing Jamie into the bathroom and he's just going to kill him. Right. And such a great and natural place to, and a natural cliffhanger there to separate these two episodes here. Um, but yeah, I mean, more than like the bigger thematic things, I think I was hooked early on just how fun it was having like almost in a noir genre mm-hmm. of like here's an unlikely hero in a space that maybe we've seen and we're kind of familiar with with like silicon valley and some things like that but here like let's see if we can do it like a season of fargo or something and that kind of narrative structure with its little asides and its little diatribes like i think the like the fx on hulu brand is strong in oh, doing yeah. that so i think that's what it was more of an aesthetic thing i think that had me mm. it's interesting you say that cuz if we can jump into sort of episode 5 and we're going to we're going to kind of go episode by episode here uh before we get into like the biggest possible conversations and there are some rather all encompassing ones um I, isn't episode 5 kind of where the notion of uh noir central plotting breaks down and plot dematerializes sort of all together I think yeah the first 5 and 6 kind of have trouble figuring out okay, well, we're not a noir anymore, we're something else. Because I guess one of the theories I had going in after four episodes was that Forrest was trying to like catch Amaya's killer. Mm, but right. then, of course, theory. episode five opens up with like a very graphic uh, depiction of her accidental car crash. So I was like, ah, that's not the... He knows how... She, he witnessed them die. That is not a question here. So right. it's something bigger. But then, yes, you have to take off that noir crime mystery thing and go into, like, another gear altogether. Do you think any of them understand what we're really doing here? The terms of our deal are null and void. What does that mean? I'm not going to prison. I'm not sure you even understand what we're doing here. You had choices. Keep going. And you're jumping forward and back in time, basically watching uh, the past and the future in The Sims, spending time with Allison Pill, uh, spending time having the show confront you with visual representations of the multiverse theory and like all the different ways that car crash could have gone or or not gone. Um, so around episode five and, and six, Tochi, how were how are you doing with the uh, the show, um, I don't know, if we say it went fully experimental at this point? Yeah, so so first off, I was so happy that Jamie didn't end up dying in, in that in that like situation. Right. 
Um, shout out to Jin Ha, very dear friend of mine. I was so happy to, you know, he killed it in this. Really? Um, That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was so like, it's been so exciting to, to watch him in this. And also too, just very, very brief aside, um, in, I believe it's the first episode when, when Lily and Jamie are in that bar and they're like catching up quote unquote, it hadn't struck me how sort of revolutionary that scene was with regards to representation mm-hmm. um it it like it and it just felt like the most natural thing in the entire world to have two you know super attractive you know asian characters like just talking and being messy and talking about personal relationships and just like doing their thing like it just just visual in terms of visual representation that was really cool but yeah for me the it's interesting that you talk about the noir aspect of it at first i thought the the central engine of the story was going to be Lily trying to find out what happened to Sergey, right? And like trying to uncover the truth of that. And, you know, Forrest and, and whatever he's trying to do with Amaya would be the sort of backdrop against which like all of that happens. And so like that always seemed a lot more amorphous for me. Hmm. And the mystery there was like, okay, what does looking into the past have to do with, how is that going to play with any sort of reunion, you know, so to speak, right. with, his, with his daughter? Because, like, that was, how, that was how I always saw it, was he was trying to get back to her in some way. And, you know, in that interesting way that science fiction can literalize metaphor, what does get back to her mean, right? I wanted to bring out, Jin Ha's performance is so good that I'm mistakenly in the first episode and Noah gave me endless amounts of shit about this. I thought he was going to be the main character um, because, not to, you know, talk shit, but the, the Jamie's, Jamie the character was instantly so much more interesting than Sergei. I was like, this is, this is the star of the oh, show, yeah. this guy right here. Um, not really right about that. But also, it's a very natural performance in a show where, like, people mm-hmm. very intentionally are not acting natural. Almost Absolutely. nobody else. And he's so great in just being afraid in that scene with Kenton. Yeah. So like that we pick oh up again God. where he's just like in the tub getting his fingers broken. <laughs> yeah. And he, this sort of blank terror that he has on his face is like one of the scariest reactions to torture I think I've seen like mm-hmm. in any series. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you really have to believe in that scene that like Kenton has done enough damage to not execute him and to let him go that the intimidation has actually worked, and it's it's Jin Han yeah. that sells that. Um, is this is that also the la- kind of the last great Kenton moment on the show? Because Zach Grenier has been really good through the first half. The "You're the dissident, I'm the tank" speech, I think that might be mm. his kind of his high point. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, then he just kind of becomes a pretty stereotypical like boomer male where he's like, I haven't, if I couldn't fix it with violence, I'm just going to fix it with violence. Yeah. Yeah. I did. I did. I I have to say, I did really appreciate his, his conversation with Forrest where he's like, look, I'm going to keep it funky. I need to know that I'm not going to jail. Mm -hmm. I feel like that's a conversation that I wish I witnessed more in storytelling. So in terms of where I'm at with this show, like down the stretch here, I'm going to sort of self-examine some of the critiques I have about um, 
like this didn't fulfill me in like a carrot like a character writing way or it didn't like make sense in the maybe sort of facile way that i was trying to make sense of it but before i self-examine one of the weird things in episode five is the flashback to like lily and sergey getting together why why is their relationship so weird why are they like it's not normal when they're like sitting on the bed and they're like i love you and then they instantly start up netflix again I just don't buy well, isn't that, that? I mean, not to spoil the ending, but like, doesn't that <laughs> kind of become addressed at the end? Does it? Yeah. Well, like it was all, it was all, it was founded on a lie, right? Like he, right. like it was all like she was his way in and, and, and all of that, which is That's interesting fair. because there's, you know, as, as, as you both pointed out earlier, there's so much. There's so much made of how sort of non-human the perfor- a lot of the performances are, right. and this whole sort of instead of instead of these characters being windows into intimate moments, they're almost walls against like yeah, keeping us a good point. from those moments. And then the fact that this entire relationship is fabricated, this relationship, you know, that you know led Lily down this path. The fact that it, you know, the foundation of it is fabricated. I like it. Just it, it read very in keeping with the show. Sure, and that's true. Yeah, I guess that's. I'm, I'm <laughs> my critique is why is it so in keeping with the show? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Why is it, why is this show so on brand? Yeah, why is it so thorough? Why does it all feel like it's coming from one guy? <laughs> well, I do think it's interesting going back to the like bigger philosophical questions about the show. This one's sort of when the show turns and says the universe is not deterministic. In fact, it's more multiverse, which is the reason that we got rid of this other character who's going to come up in a big way later. Um, and Lyndon. Mm-hmm. I loved Lyndon so much. Lyndon and Jamie were my favorite characters. They were really good. Yeah. Wait, what was it? What, were, what point were you making about the, the multiverse? Oh, this there? is just the moment that the show really like diverges from the voice of the powerful CEO trying to direct the narrative one way. Right. And the show through like the him meeting Katie um, or the thing or the really interesting visual with the car going the other ways and stuff like showing how anything can. And that sort of harkens back to our, our conversation in the first episode chance where we're like, is Forrest dismissing people when they prove what he already knows to be true, that there is a multiverse and it's not deterministic. Right. Um, I don't know where we land on that here, but I think the Alex Garland is like, nah, it's multiverse. Yeah. I think it's really interesting to see that. I don't know where, I think we're very trained in watching a lot of um, like sci-fi shows or movies that are based around certain theories of like who's going to be right in the end and the climax of the thing will be the proving of who is right. And so, yeah, at the halfway point to be like, no, 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 it, the show says it's one way, but the guy for whom everybody else works says it's another way. So then you get that sort of interesting dynamic of like all these people who like you think they might be under the spell of the mad genius, but they're they're just at work. They're just doing the job that he wants them to do. Do you really want something as powerful as devs in the hands of someone crazy? It's an amazing thing where love will take you. The lengths to which you'll go. There are no random events. Something happened. A breakdown of determinism. A breakdown of the literal laws of the universe. And we think it involves you. 
moving on to episode six here. This episode ultimately culminates with a conversation between Katie and Lily that explains what happens in the next two episodes. And Mm -hmm. in one way, it's like really cool to sort of see where that's going. I guess I wanted to hear a little bit from you guys. Maybe Tochi, you can start about does that narrative trick work for you or does it feel like that's when the show gets like a little goofy? You know, it's the whole Oedipus Rex thing. If you know what's going to happen, you know, the tension comes in many ways in seeing how the protagonist or what have you does everything in their power to keep that thing from happening. But ultimately that thing ends up happening. It seemed pretty telegraphed to me that breaking quote unquote of the dev system or the reason that they wouldn't be able to see beyond a certain point was because like Lily would make a choice or like she would do something. Right. Right. And it seemed pretty evident to me that she would like make a choice, right? If they're if they're constantly saying, "Oh, it's deterministic, it's deterministic, it's deterministic," you don't have a choice, you don't have a choice, you don't have a choice. Like it seemed pretty clear to me that she was going to to make a choice. So I was really interested in seeing like the growth of her character with regards to operating within that stricture, right? Mm-hmm. And it's the whole, you know, it's the conundrum of, okay, if somebody told you what you were going to do in the future, would you still do it? Right. Right. And I thought that the way that the show handled that over, you know, the last the last couple episodes was really, really, really interesting um, because there are ways to do foreknowledge um, poorly. And I think there are still ways to be innovative about it. And if you have characters that are smart and and critical and can actually think and process this idea and and process what they're going through. I think you can find really interesting ways, really interesting and novel ways to depict characters operating with foreknowledge. I think that's that's interesting. And it makes me think, too, that the show somehow then transitions from forecasting the future of its own narrative to having it be... Because if you think about it, until the last episode, you don't actually see the future. Forrest and Katie just tell other characters what is going to happen. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I, I, not to, I mean, we can move to the next uh, episode for examples, I think, here. But it starts with this dining room conversation. And really, the future knowledge is used as such a weapon in the scene where Katie and Lyndon meet on the bridge. Oh my God. That's the best. Because at that point, I think it's arguable that Katie uses her foreknowledge to murder someone. On a very kind of like literal individual level, whenever they would, you know, bring up like, well, you can't change it. You don't have free will. Or like when they were watching the, you know, the employees are all watching themselves and what they'll do like one second from now. I'm like, isn't human nature just to be like, well, then I'm not going to do that. Like, I will just do something, I will just reject that and do something else just to prove that this is a thing. But I think the show is taking a much, like, deeper, longer, um, I think, and I'm really glad that you brought up, uh, like, Sophocles, Tochi, because I think there is, like, a pretty, like, ancient, old, I mean, there's even, like, a, a Roman a Roman twist <laughs> coming up. <laughs> um, and I don't know, like, I think it just has more to do with, like, death drives and long views and even got me thinking about like in these weird pandemic times like you look at all these curves like state to state and you're just i mean i don't know i have the experience of looking at them and i'm like you mean by that dot three thousand people will just like be gone like how's that gonna work like i'm i'm here and like my neighbor's over there and like how are we going to arrive at that number and then by that date we've arrived at that number 
I mean, I think mm-hmm. I it's it's a f- more frightening kind of long term long view fatalism. I think. I mean, one of the things that I really, really, really appreciated about this show is the way that it was able to dramatize Conundra just like that, right? Yeah. So, you know, the the whole the the question, oh, do we have free will or what have you? Like, is supremely abstract, right? <laughs> yep. But yeah, you know, like you know, but. To see the ways in which that show, the ways in which devs dramatized that and made us care about the answer to that question, not as it applied to ourselves, but as it applied to, you know, fictional characters, I thought was really, 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 really intriguing. Um, and like also too, I I geek out about quantum mechanics like just on my own. So to like to see a, a show that zeroed in on you know the Copenhagen interpretation versus like the many worlds interpretation was you know that was I was a kid in the candy store um but it's you know so in so many occasions when I've seen you know dramatizations of that question they've always come along with characters who are really dumb Mm -hmm. or like really really inarticulate in their expressions of how they feel about that you know, whatever hypothesis with regards to free will and determinism. And so it was very refreshing to see um, what amounted to me as smart depictions, right? Because, you know, that scene that you're talking about where the employees are watching their projections like two seconds into the future, all the reactions that you would expect them to have strike as true. Or like it, they, they, they struck me as true and like it, it, I thought it was just very, very, very well played. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know if this like notion that that I was having maybe like coming from a critical point of like, well, wouldn't it just be your instinct to try to disprove the thing? Um, I think like the totality of our human behavior says no. You probably go along with it. <laughs> the majority of your choices do just slide down that path. <laughs> so other things that happen in episode six, just so we don't lose track. Gentlemen, this is basically the episode at Forrest's house. So yeah, you have the Lily Katie conversation at the table, and then you just have some uh, good old fashioned Bay Area fr- frisbee <laughs> frisbee thrown <laughs> in the street. Love that, I guess. Um, but yeah, what else? What else about what else about this? I love when Kenton, like in the last shot, is like, <laughs> "You guys have the audacity to <laughs> hang out without me." Yeah. yeah. I've been sitting in my car for six hours now. watching yeah. you play yeah. frisbee. Yeah, Noah, you have written down that you were you were feeling a little cold toward the the Katie character. There's something about that scene where they're just like talking at each other, and maybe it's like just the that I hated the character, but like the way she explained it was so like without any emotion it was like mean it was just so like mean Mm. and Mm -hmm. i I don't know like what it i don't have a better word to describe it um but it really got under my skin in an unpleasant way yeah there's a real like savant thing to that performance um and also it's just great acting like her she does not blink um Mm. her eyes are just sort of like you know maw like at times um, well, she's got a face, too, that you can, like, if it's that close-up shot of her just, like, giving these lines, you can sort of get lost in her just lack of expression because you know she's capable of such expression. All right, so we're going to take a real quick break to hear from one of our sponsors, and then we'll be back with Devs Episode 7. Restart. 
Today's episode of Be Real is brought to you by Podcorn, an online marketplace connecting podcasters with brands and businesses looking to create and place podcast advertising. Podcasters with audiences of all sizes can browse opportunities on the Podcorn platform, set their own rates, collaborate with brands directly. No exclusivities. Noah and I think a lot about how to keep the Be Real engine humming, and we know it can sometimes feel like a really nebulous challenge to financially support and grow your creative project, which is part of why I was super jazzed to discover Podcorn. I truly think they help bridge a gap that exists for a lot of burgeoning podcasts. Very user-friendly, many different brands and businesses to pitch to, and I also quite appreciate that they bought this ad. Find a link to podcorn.com in our show notes and start there. If you're a brand, you can field pitches. If you're a podcaster, you can start reaching out right away. Especially in these weird times where it feels like the content game is one of the few things still in full motion. No time like the present to check it out. Visit podcorn.com to sign up and get started. So this is, <laughs> just for some light teasing, this is where... Uh, Jamie and Lily try to skirt determinism by staying home. Yo, when I saw that, I was like, you're, you're speaking to me. You're speaking to me. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't drive yeah. the other direction. I would try to get through this with tea and uh, making the bed. Yeah, tea and making the bed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but no, Kenton, yeah. who's like hopped up on a couple of five-hour energies <laughs> and a lot of like repressed sexuality, still bleeding out of his shows side. up, shows up to kill both of them. Yep. Mm. Which was, I think, that part was pretty expected, right? I guess I thought Jamie would maybe get a little bit more dignity, but he like really just like gets it in the head and slumps over. Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm. While he's carrying the tea tray. Yeah. Um, oh, the, was... the lemon like lovingly put on the lip of the glass. I know, man. <laughs> it's rough. It's rough. That was rough. But um, this episode also well, it has the bridge that we've already talked about, but it's also got one of maybe Alex Garland's less um, delicate turns where he's like, actually, there's a Russian agent that's been hanging out outside the whole time. <laughs> how, I mean, how did the Russian... That's kind of how you felt about the episode two thing too, right? The whole, the Russian plot line, maybe a little yes, indelicate. Yes, I am actor from Golden Globe, or Best Picture winner, Spotlight. Now I am Russian, I'm Russian contact. Yeah, that was, the well, whole it, like him being there to do that never really... Like, the show makes fun of it for being, like, a bad James Bond premise in the pilot. But that doesn't mean it's not continuing to be a bad James Bond plot. The one thing that I wondered about was that, like, at first, I I postulated that Alex Garland was using this homeless man as some sort of, like, allegory or statement about income inequality, like, as all this other stuff is going on, right? Like... You know, you have this super important plot stuff and these characters that we're paying attention to when every morning when they go to work, they have to step over this guy, you know, to to get to work or to get to the plot or whatever. Um, and he just ends up he just ends up being like Chekhov's Spetnaz guy. Like, <laughs> I mean, like I did. I, I, I mean, just as a, you know, as a as a thriller guy, I thought it was I thought it was like fun. But it didn't necessarily strike me as particularly meaningful. Right. The 
reading it in a thriller sense, it's like the chessboard of the show like constricts really rapidly at a certain point. You're like, well, what pieces mm-hmm. are on the board? Mm-hmm. Pete, the guy outside the door, he's on the board. <laughs> yeah. um, and like also like the company by the end has two and a half employees. Um, <laughs> yeah. and, I mean, like I could forgive that. Like it becomes a much different kinds of show. Its concerns are clearly different. But yeah, sometimes when it's just like, oh, we got to solve that whole like uh, Russian agent thing. It's like, yeah, you're going to solve it in a hurry is what you're going to do. Yeah. Yeah. It feels like writing out of a corner too, where it's like, okay, what do we do next to make sure Lily lives through this thing she shouldn't live through? Right. Right. So. Right. Right. Um, you get to see Sonoya Mizuno do more physical acting, which we've talked about on the other show is something we really like it when she does. Um, so swinging that lamp at Kenton's head. I'm in for that. Yeah. I also found it very sympathetic when, after being approached with a huge decision of how to upright root her life, um, she takes a nap. That felt very... Yeah. Oh, that was so relatable. That was very relatable. <laughs> I think, though, that, like... So this goes back to... I think the speech that Pete... And I'm, I'm starting to think that Pete may not even have been that guy's real name. Um, that he gives her... <laughs> Piotr. Yeah. <laughs> Peter with a Y. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, but I, I found it interesting, like, at the very end, he he makes clear, like, you can go to the CIA and be interrogated for years, or you can go to Hong Kong with and stay with your mom, which I guess we don't know, like, why that would be so bad. But the key distinction he makes is that, like, your life is over. And then this is the same episode where we get linden coming back and the steven henderson character is like you are 19 and a genius like you don't have to come back and i think that's more where the show is again making good on the like yeah these characters might have free will but like faced with the idea that like your old life is done people are Mm -hmm. more likely to react by being like no it's not no it's not no it's not let me go get that thing like i'm not going to the cia and i'm not going to go get another job There's something comforting about knowing in that situation, though, I think for Lily that, you know, going to jail, being interrogated or living with her mother, uh, she knows that the actual thing she does is go to devs and change the history of the world. Mm. So there's that comfort of knowing, well, I do have a third option that this Russian guy doesn't know about. (laughs) And so then it's like, well, that's the yeah, that's the universe. Right. Can we fully unpack the the Lyndon Katie bridge scene now? Let's do it. Oh my god! Oof. Okay, let me emotionally prep myself. One of the things about I do not envy the challenge that Garland has of representing the multiverse theory like visually on screen, and I think that the ways in which he does are quite beautiful and affecting. Like the different Lyndons falling is amazing. Um, and is so artful. I mean, and that's the thing you could say about like his directing in general is I don't think he has an enormous special effects budget at all. I don't think this is happening in the giant, uh, you know, Marvel-esque green screen rooms. I think he's figuring out ways to on a relatively we, modest budget. You spent the whole budget on that uh, big doll that they have in the woods there. <laughs> yeah. Imagine how expensive it was to not only build, but break that thing down. It's the most expensive item in Party City. Um, <laughs> um, okay, but so am I to understand then that in none of the other 
multiverses did Linden was Linden able to stand or is that just we think a limitation of what Garland can show I'm going to go back to my point from before I think Katie's lying to Linden by saying that she's seen them survive I don't think that that happened I think they die in every single one of them and that is that's like the way that she murders them Okay. Yeah. So it's it. I I I kind of caught into that too because I do think that it is an endorsement of the many worlds interpretation. At the same time, I do feel that Katie weaponized that against Lyndon because, like, there's that there's that joy that Lyndon feels that, like, oh oh my god, I'm right. Like, yeah, I'm right. And then in some worlds, I'll keep the job. Exactly, exactly, exactly. But like, but that, that's still isn't you know, that still determinism? If like in every example, yeah. well, Linden, like that's Linden the thing. Falls? Is the, that well, that's the thing is that I feel like because if if many worlds is true, then there are an infinite number of variations, right? Which you can't you. show. Exactly, you can't show every you know little variation in this particular air particle right. or like a piece of clothing flapping this way as opposed Linda to just that. Bounces way. back in one of them, like <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like you're literally splitting hairs, which I thought was a fantastic joke that they made in an <laughs> earlier episode. Uh, but yeah, so I think I think part of it is I think part of it is the limitations of. Not necessarily just filming, but in terms of just like dramatic narrative. Like, it, right. I don't know that you maintain the power of that scene or that dynamic by depicting or alluding to infinity, right? right? right. Like, what we care about is, you know, is, is Lyndon falling right. and all the different, and seeing all the different ways in which Lyndon falls seems to demonstrate that there are more instances or more realities where Lyndon dies than there are where Lyndon survives. Totally. Which I think is a very powerful point to demonstrate dramatically. But did this bother you, Chance? I feel like you have a note here that you're, you become disconcerted with the plot. A little bit, but that's more me again, like trying to pin down individual human behavior, still wondering like, who Lily is, why is Sonoya Mizuno's performance like not squaring with what I think of as a TV character with like traits and depth and dimensionality. And and around episode seven, I just kind of have to accept the fact that, and this is true, this is what happened to me, is like I'm still watching this show for a reason. Like I'm fully like mesmerized mm-hmm. by the show for a reason. And maybe it's like my definition that's that's a little too narrow. I also started to feel like, you guys ever start to feel like at some point like this show was just like a song that had been going on for like six hours? Ha, hmm. <laughs> huh, interesting. With all the like 60s and 70s psych rock and then the Jeff Barrow main theme with that like high, crazy, distorted horn. Um, I think the audio experience did wonders for keeping me glued to oh, this yeah. thing. Well, I'm also such a sucker for like Michael Crichton or Jonathan Nolan, like garbage mm-hmm. science, like fed to me as if it's real. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like that. You know, put that Inception shit right into my veins. Mm. Absolutely, yeah. I get it now. Like I understand Extinction better because I read Jurassic Park. 
This struck me very much as a companion piece, at least thematically and in some ways aesthetically with Ex Machina. Mm -hmm. And one of the pieces of connective tissue there is Sonoya Mizuno, who like plays an android, if I remember correctly. Right. And so like when from from Mizuno's performance, I didn't get this like sort of these big expressions of humanness. Right. It seemed to strike me as like, if not normal, then like, okay, like this is in keeping with things. Totally. Um, and what, what was the other thing we found out? In Annihilation, she plays the mirror person at the end. I did not know yeah, that. Yeah, she's doing that physical dance, mirroring Portman. Wow. So, wow. So, like, there you go. What a specific weird skill set <laughs> for an actor, yeah, who's not. And she has a, and she has a background as a dancer, too. Like, right. so, like, this is all, it's, the more I found out about this show, the more intrigued I was by a lot of the decision making, particularly the casting decision making. Like, you know, casting Kaylee Spaney as Lyndon, like, I thought was fascinating. Yeah. Absolutely fascinating. That's true. Going back to the scene where Stephen Henderson Stewart is uh, showing his coworkers like what they're about to do one second from now, and all the coworkers are like, "What am I feeling right now in the pit of my stomach?" And he goes, "That's your unconscious mind saying, uh oh." And it's like <laughs> that. That I felt to me yep. was a sin- a signal maybe of like, if you're having trouble with this show, chance, but are still like really glued to it, like maybe it's just your unconscious mind saying, uh oh, <laughs> about the way that humans actually are, as opposed to the way like you want them to be in a dramatic acting performance. There are a lot of good takeaway lines in this episode. I love the bit where Stuart does the quote. Do you guys know who the quote is? It's a Philip Larkin poem. So Stuart does this quote and as sort of this like allegorical morality, like don't do this forest moment. And it totally like forest gets what he's doing, but like doesn't care. And Stuart asks him if he knows who the poet is and just to guess who it is. And which leads to the line forest. I don't mind. You don't know who I was quoting, but I do mind that you can't even guess, Mm -hmm. which is such a painful moment. And then like 30 seconds later, um, when he takes the little elevator car across, Katie's like, oh, I think he was talking Shakespeare out there. And <laughs> Forrest goes, oh, that's who it was. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Was Stuart Funk... I mean, I love Stephen Henderson. I think he's amazing in this. I think that it's a great piece of casting. But also, I think he just represents a really interesting like archetype, or maybe not even archetype, but like an anxiety that we that at least I have about like the um, accelerated forward motion of tech stuff where he, in a, like several different scenes, including like an argument with Lyndon earlier in the show is the guardian of, of the past and of artistic and literary uh, knowledge. And he's just like, if, 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 if we have the power to look into the past and like none of you guys even care about authors or composers, like what the fuck are we doing here? Um, right. I almost think of him as the person you hope like wrote anonymous and is like in the room with Trump, like making sure <laughs> yeah. like there is an adult in the room somewhere. And it's, it's this guy who, I mean, in the finale, when we get to it, uh, does the thing that needs doing, even if it's not his choice. Yeah. He struck me as a very sort of Greek chorus character. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and sort of chance getting back to your your point about anxieties, you know, very much representing 
the viewers' anxieties. And also, I, I, one of the takeaways I had from that scene where Forrest refuses even to guess what, what poet Stewart is, is quoting, this sort of, not anti-intellectualism from tech leaders, but this, this idea that they're not nearly as smart as people think they are. Yeah. Or like they're not nearly as like, you know, intellectually curious or or well read or what have you. Like there's this idea that they're that they're messiahs, that they're gods, that they're somehow other, right? But like this man can't even be bought. like it would almost have been more normal or more sort of I guess acceptable if Forrest had, you know, not only answered Shakespeare, but answered like the exact sonnet number and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you know, demonstrated some encyclopedic knowledge of this really obscure thing that doesn't necessarily have any evidently, you know, evident connection to the work that he does. But no, Forrest refuses even to, he's like, I can't be bothered with that right now. I don't care. And that to me was like, that struck me as one of the most terrifyingly true aspects of a depiction of a tech leader in, <laughs> in sure. America. A hundred percent. I I love that point. And cause like, yeah, your classic Gothic villain is just like, mm-hmm. yeah, I know that poem. That poem means everything to my devious mission. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and, but that, so that makes me think too, we should talk about just um, maybe the simplicity of Forrest's motivation here. Cause we also do have some conversations around like Forrest isn't the genius Katie and Lyndon are the geniuses. Stuart is the memory. Um, Forrest is just the guy with an idea and one single piece of ironclad motivation. Yeah. Well, and like so creepy too. Like his daughter, his daughter's face is everywhere. Everywhere. There are all these strangers, all these employees walking around, you know, the campus doing this thing and nobody seems to be freaked out about the fact that this little girl's face <laughs> is everywhere. It's the background on everybody's computer. Surely they must know who this girl is. Yeah. Like why like why is nobody freaked out about that? <laughs> the benefits are incredible. Yeah, I was like is is the, is the pay that good? Like wow. I mean 10 million if you get fired. <laughs> yeah, that's not bad at all actually when kenton stabs you your deductible is super low it's all covered um gotcha yeah, put your spine back together <laughs> yeah. this makes me think though about the uh the conversation in episode six we were already making fun of a little bit where forrest is just like everybody knows who i lost and he's all solemn about it. it's like this is your brand sir <laughs> you are not allowed to be sad about people knowing who you lost Absolutely. Like we were making fun of we were making fun of Drake for, you know, potentially unveiling his kid with an Adidas rollout. And, you know, Drake's got nothing on Forrest, man. Yeah, he's got the quantum mechanics monopoly here with the, yeah. the likeness of his dead daughter. Yeah. Um But yeah, this is it is sort of consistent with um it got me thinking about uh I don't know how you guys feel about the the uh, Aaron Sorkin, Danny Boyle, Steve Jobs. It's it's kind of like a mixed movie, but there are some great conversations therein where Wozniak mm. really kind of holds his feet to the fire of like, you don't swing a hammer, you don't write code. Like, what the hell do you, is it you do? And Fassbender mm-hmm. gets the kick-ass line of like, I play the orchestra. Um, and yeah. Forrest is kind of the same way. 
Yeah, well, he's got the money. Right. And, like, they never explain how he made that money mm. or, like, Mm-mm. you know, did he inherit it from anywhere? Like, what did he do to get that money? Is he, like, you know, a secret, like, arms dealer or, like, what? Like, how did that happen? Un- but huge, he literally, he has mistake. more money than God. Like, I think it's a huge mistake, too. And Chance and I talked about th- about this a little bit at the end of the first episode. But, like... How do you cast Nick Offerman and give him this like goofy <laughs> wig and full beard if you don't have like a five years earlier sequence where he's clean shaven and he's got like the Ron Swanson haircut? They do like a one year earlier and he's got like a little more hair. Um, by the yeah, way, yeah. we because I will know I will not remember to make fun of his wig. The more philosophical we get, the scene where <laughs> Offerman is showering in the wig was oh my god! I wanted to yeah. go outside. <laughs> That was a tough scene. That would, if your suspension uh, wasn't broken when the six hundred lindens fall off the bridge, uh, it, it's the it's the shower scene. You're showering it's, in a wig. The, sho- the shower scene. The shower scene. Um, well, shall we push into the finale here? Hi, Lily. Come in. I'll tell you a secret. The sense that you were participating in life was only ever an illusion. You tech leaders think that you're messiahs. You've taken everything from me. I can't take what you never had. This is basically the fulfillment, or not, of the prophecy of the of the machine's destruction or or resetting, or just actually the arrival at the end game. Depends, I suppose how you think about it but where do we want to where do we want to start here so lily goes back to back to devs as was foretold and then she and then she fucks with the system by making a choice right well she sees how it plays out and sees the system work in total like james bond villain kind of this is my secret plan <laughs> yeah. and then she yeah makes that choice that either changes or everything or nothing I guess I guess I consider it to be the ultimate twist, but you you guys will have to tell me if you if you think it struck you that way or not because it's definitely it's not sold super hard. But was the goal the goal was always for Forrest himself to go re-exist in the sim, right? Is that right? Right. It was to be so yeah. aware of the sim existing that when he died in the real world his sim person would just inherit his awareness of what was going on. And so it would be him essentially. I think that's a really interesting twist. How did you guys feel about it? Yeah. I mean, I was just happy to have that explanation. <laughs> Cause I like, Relieved. I've been like, shooting this over for days guys. So much of the, the system's power it had been demonstrated was in over the course of several episodes in demonstrating with increasing accuracy, and and clarity the past right yeah and you know i kept telling myself amaya's dead like how is how is forrest going to reunite with her like the system doesn't allow him to travel back into the past he can only visualize it right, right. and then it got into you know the predictive model and it's like oh we can predict the future now it's like but amaya's still dead so how is he going to and then we got to the many worlds stuff and 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 I, w- and I was trying to figure out, and for me, the linchpin was in Katie's explanation. Like after, after Forrest 
dies and his, his consciousness is uploaded into the sim, um, Katie says that the only way that he gets what he wants is if Lyndon is right or if he like agrees that Lyndon's right or something like that, which seems to imply that many worlds exist within the sim, the implication also being that if it exists in the sim and the sim is an accurate representation of the universe as is lived by people in the real world, then many worlds applies to the real world as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you guys about this. So as almost a throwaway sequence <laughs> as a narrative uh, tension building device as they're waiting for the little elevator car to take them to devs. Forrest turns to Lily and goes, just kidding. The project we've been working on <laughs> slash the show you've been watching for seven episodes. It's not called devs. Actually, the V is a Roman U. It's for Deus. It's for God, which I've got to say blew my mind even more than the big twist we just talked about because the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was Alex Garland getting funding for a miniseries <laughs> just so he could say he made two projects called Ex Machina and Deus. And Deus, yeah. That's very good. That was exactly where my mind went. Shit. That was exactly Deus Ex Machina. That is exactly where my mind went. Wow. That's my good, two guys. projects about CEOs of tech companies losing their minds is called Deus and Ex Machina. Deus, Ex Machina. Yes. I think that wordplay twists are a little bit lame. It kind of reminded me of in Event Horizon where they mistranslate the Latin from the literal devil in the black hole. Um, but also... It's not E. It's not 33. It's E-E. Shit. What, is that Left Behind? No, that's what's the yeah the Nick Cage is not left behind. It's the Nick Cage with the Rose Byrne, where the fate keeps playing out, like causing natural disasters. Oh shit! It's everyone else. EE stands for everyone else. <laughs> it really it doesn't get worse, but funnier than that. Um, like how are you supposed to know that it stands for everyone? Anyway, um, but also I think that's a good nugget of, uh like micro screenwriting of you can't just watch the exact same scene of Lily walking forest at gunpoint out to the electromagnetized capsule once again. So you have that little twist of like, he has to make her really mad somehow. And that sort of being like, if you were on the fence about whether I had a God complex, (laughs) I named my thing. God, (laughs) is that enough to get you to walk me out of here with the gun? And it is. Yeah. Well, that's sort of the interesting like tying of the bow of like why did they need to kill Sergey? It's like well they didn't kill Sergey because of any other reason than to upset Lily, so Lily would then kill Forrest. Because mm-hmm. that's the ultimate reason that sh- she would have to do whatever, I guess. But that's not what happens, gentlemen. What happens is she throws the gun into the lobby of the dev's office, and they're trapped in the little elevator car with no gun. And then Devs ends and, you know, becomes Westworld and we're all happy. No, that's not what happens. <laughs> How do we feel about what level of darkness strikes us about once Lily and Forrest do arrive in the simulation? 
And Forrest says... When Stuart kills them, you're not going to say how it ends? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah. Stuart, the, the Greek chorus... He turns off the magnet and kills both of them. <laughs> um, but once they're in the simulation and Forrest is like, this is paradise. All I could think about was, yeah, for you. Like, what is, what exactly. is Lily supposed to do now? Well, also, like, are the people are the people around him alive? Poor Sergey was dead for the whole show, and suddenly he's back trying to trying to start his first day at Devs. Like, nothing happened. <laughs> but I mean, it got me thinking about that question of where Forrest's money came from, and I don't, I don't know if this is commentary that like Garland totally intended, but um, it's almost like reincarnation still upholds the same problems of the current world when it's at the whim of this one guy who has all the all the money and all the freedom to do what he wants what like when when there's even like a strange moment where Forrest is like Lily go do whatever it is that you do it's like she's at work what is she supposed where where does she go from here and I think it's very telling that she go in one of the show's few moments I felt of like something I recognized as you know like intimate humanity is just like this whole project was driven by his holding on to and seeking of just a feeling of reunification. And at the end, she goes to the one place where she can have a feeling and give a feeling to somebody else and Jamie. But I guess I don't know if it... Sorry, go ahead, Toji. Oh, no, I was just I was just agreeing. It's a yeah. very interesting depiction of, of a mulligan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's kind of that... Um, Groundhog Day kind of thing, but I guess my question on like a narrative level is: Well, isn't the next series of things that happen the preceding seven episodes? Like he doesn't then start at Devs, and he doesn't figure out what's actually happening, and he doesn't try to steal it for the Russian government. Like I, I don't follow what he's going to find when he goes there. I had I I came away with the same question too. Yeah, I don't know. Because it's not like the it's not like the show starts the day before he gives that presentation of the worm moving. Like that would have been funny if the, it was like the a replay of that, and he's like, "You're an idiot. You're fired, Sergey." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> worm. We don't care about that shit. We don't care what a worm's gonna do ten seconds from now. <laughs> yeah, I guess I I just I I realized that that giant question is there, and if I was gonna pick at it it might frustrate me but yeah i just think the takeaway is like this was always like a totally solipsistic uh project for forest and lily Mm -hmm. is now essentially like almost marooned as like a character in someone else's dream like i I watched waking life this week (laughs) for some reason oh wow and uh I was not prepared for how much like devs with all of the sort of like statements it would throw at me um, would just remind me of like, I don't know, all these like different theories on existence. And in the end, you just kind of sit with the ones that maybe you take away because you can't take away all of them and you shouldn't take away some of them. Yeah, I mean, maybe in the end analysis, we're all just fragments in the dream of a sleeping giant. I'm feeling fine with that. That doesn't seem like that doesn't seem like the worst case scenario. As long as I got my PS4, my Xbox One, I'm good. And the giant doesn't care when I sleep and when I wake up. If I can keep my own body clock, exactly. <laughs> um, what else, guys? Do you think the show ended pretty definitively with the 
junior senator from California, who's certainly not Kamala Harris, uh, (laughs) agreeing to keep the project secret if the government can play with it. Uh, I mean, I thought that was kind of like a nice Alex Garland stamp on this, but Mm -hmm. I could also see it being the entry point into a season where there's like the real world and then the inside the devs world that they're like trying to get out of or something. Do you guys, do you want, do you want more? How do you, yeah. How do you feel? Fuck no. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I'm good. I'm good. I think, well, I'm good. it's one of the reasons that I quit on Westworld, uh, in addition to me just being very bad at watching TV, I prefer movies, um, is I don't really like a show that's primary goal is puzzle box. And I feel like, in the end, like this show, like straddled the line of becoming a puzzle box, and in the end, gave you just more like theme to chew on. And so, yeah, if we restart the simulation and have to deal with the uh, federal government ethics of simulation, <laughs> I think we're, <laughs> I think we're in weird territory. I'm, I'm good. I'm I'm good. What's no, so I, f- it. Go ahead. I well, this makes me this makes me wonder about whether we're seeing the slow birth of a new preferred broadcasting format in the limited series mm-hmm. right because you know you and you saw it with Watchmen too and you know there you know there was and i imagine still is talk about whether or not there's going to be a season 2 but like it was pretty definitive from at least the creative involvement that no like we told the story that we wanted to tell with this series like when award season comes around this is going to be marketed as a limited series like that sort of thing you know same thing with um american crime story mm-hmm. and what have you and so i'm wondering and you know we you know again with chernobyl you have these these instances of story being told or filtered through a singular vision and it allows for the expansiveness that you wouldn't necessarily get from a film while at the same time you can avoid some of the the bloat or choppiness that you might get from longer episodic television you know it feels like a more cohesive whole while at the same time being perhaps more digestible than a 13 episode or 24 episode series. Totally. What do you guys feel like are the primary ways in which Garland did or did not use the space well? Cause I can imagine this as a two and a half hour movie, but it's six hours. So when he got to spread out, what's, what's the ultimate takeaway on how he used the space? I mean, I think you got to play around with some more fun monologues and people sitting on porches and talking <laughs> about very lay person quantum physics and the, you know, morality around that. Um, but I don't know. I think this second half was a little sluggish to me and he was almost ha- like having a little too much fun visually, so much so that. I thought the first two episodes were sort of an obscure way of just doing one kind of plot developing because we kind of even talking about it on this podcast kind of put them into one thing. Mm-hmm. So I, I I could see this being a slim down, like maybe you don't need eight episodes. Maybe you only need five kind of series yeah. here. Maybe, maybe it should have been a like quibby, a... guys. No, God. <laughs> I've been watching that uh, Most Dangerous Game on Quibi. It is very compelling. That's so funny. It's it's interesting because the feeling that I got from the 
second half of the show was that it condensed a lot of plot beats into a very short amount of time. Yeah. So it seemed like a lot happened really fast. And the last time that I felt that way was, and, you know, I, I, don't, I don't mean this to disparage devs, but the last season of Game of Thrones, right, where particularly in those first episodes, we're just trampling through all these plot beats and all these emotional beats and whatnot and just gobbling up stuff that could have taken, you know, easily four or five episodes to, like, unspool, right? Right. So I do feel that maybe if some of the plot had been slimmed down, then there would be more room for that same tonal expansiveness that we got from the first like couple of episodes as well as space to accommodate a lot of the heavier like thematic discursions that the latter half of the series makes like i really like the way that it you know with the implication that many worlds is correct like that explodes all sorts of possibilities for the plot right but when you have too much plot to get through like this person has to get to this place this person has to uncover this thing etc etc um it can be difficult to balance those those things i frankly am not sure if i but Toji, you have some uh, fluency in, in quantum theory you said but i i think for me and the average viewer i think you might need the the six hours just to let people get a handle on what they think this means um, I think if you try to serve up a couple different theories about existence in a, in a two-hour movie. Like, I kept thinking the endings of Ex Machina and Annihilation are very similar. And as a film viewer, you can really get a handle on this idea of, like, there is a thing, there is a power that was either created uh, by a madman in his basement lab or by... a alien species that you know came in a meteorite to earth and the thing at the end is it's out of containment that's the ending shot of both of those movies and the idea not of keeping containment but of going into the thing and immersion is honestly so much more ambitious and takes so much more time to get the viewer on the hook for so even if i found myself a little dissatisfied at the television um grammar of the show at times like I think I think it's he probably did need a limited series space to just get this idea somewhat intelligible. Sounds like you wanted oh, no. a Mr. Quantum Theory to be like the the devs <laughs> day one PowerPoint presentation to like take you through the is whole thing. Is that a thing. Jurassic Park reference? Yes, it is. Oh, like Mr. DNA, okay. <laughs> like Mr. We think Jesus Christ to complete the code. <laughs> Oh my god. We look at Marilyn Monroe having sex to complete the code. <laughs> <laughs> this should there is there should have been room for like an Ian Malcolm character in this program. Oh my though. goodness. Right? Yeah, like Would've a, chewed up a all leather the clad naysayer sitting in the corner. <laughs> yeah, come on. <laughs> Give me a rock star. Chaos theory definitely had a place in here. Uh oh my goodness. Tiny yeah. little imperfections uh in the devs room. All right, gentlemen. Final final thoughts on devs? Oh man. Um Yeah, just more shit like that. Yeah. On TV, yeah, I can dig it. Or tourist, challenging, well cast, beautiful looking, incredible. I can't say enough about the score, honestly. 
Oh my god, yeah. The just, score is great. Yeah. Oh. It's maybe a little unnerving to like watch these people work very hard in total isolation and then like turn off Hulu and survey your apartment and it's just you <laughs> and your girlfriend working in total isolation. <laughs> yeah. So like that was a little that was a little creepy, but otherwise it was a a good show. Yeah, it's tough to be like um to go back to the Is cheap- there a Noah that just walks into the street and loses his mind? <laughs> Yeah. Well, thanks so much, Tochi, for helping us out with this one. No, this was this was a blast. I mean, this is this is exactly the one of those shows that's like you watch it, and a big part of the appeal of the show is the feeling of oh shit, I got to talk to somebody about this mm. like, that you feel like right after. So I am I am overjoyed that y'all had me on to to talk about it. We will be back on the Playlist Podcast Network soon with. Uh, pretty good sized episode about al pacino detective films for old al's 80th birthday that's coming later this week so please keep it tuned gentlemen be well on the wall